investigate and examine and explore and probe and try to find, uh, if we can find evidence either way to the proof of Torah, the way the Jewish people look at it, uh, that it is indeed from God, both the written Torah and the oral Torah, or like uh, some revisionists have tried to claim, that is the product of man. So we're going to investigate some information. This is part seven, so... uh, Hopefully this will be the last, so we're going to try to do this um, all tonight. Uh, but this is going to be part seven, and we're going to investigate more of the data, more of the information, more of the evidence to see what we can find with regards to proving one way or the other the accuracy and divinity of the Torah. So the first thing I'm going to do is discuss something that's relatively unknown. A lot of what we've spoken about in the past is part of the uh, what I would call the party argument of trying to prove one way or the other. Um, but there's only two kinds of people in the world. And both of these kinds of people, uh, for very different reasons, are unlikely to realize what we're going to say. In the world, we have people that study Talmud and people that don't study Talmud. The people that study Talmud are going to be so accustomed to what we're going to say right now that they're not even going to realize the, magnet, the, 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 you know, the magnitude and the enormity of what they realize and what is perfunctory, what everyone knows. On the other hand, the people that never opened up a book of Talmud, and to them, they're not even aware of kind of the astonishing methodology that the Talmud employs, and indeed its tremendous ramifications in our discussion. Now, we touched on it a little bit last week, um, about the oral Torah and the written Torah and how they relate to each other, because it's it's very well it's very it's, it's a tremendous misconception, like as if the oral Torah uh, is what we got started with, and then the written Torah is what was deduced from it. When indeed indeed the opposite was true, we started off with the oral Torah, and then we got the written Torah as a means to preserve the oral Torah. Um, so we, we spoke about it a little bit last week. We're going to go to it a little bit more this week. Next week, we're going to delve into the oral Torah itself, all the questions, all the arguments, what it contains, um, what are the problems with oral Torah, etc. But if you open the Talmud, invariably, almost any page, you'll be faced with questions. And there's two kinds of questions, and they're both opposing questions. And it doesn't seem like they should be in the same book. There's such different approaches to an issue almost opposing approaches, that you would think they should be in different books. Can you define what oral Torah Yes, I, we're going to do all that. We're going to define oral Torah mostly next week, but we'll touch, we'll touch about it a little bit this week. When you open a book of Talmud, and I have a book of Talmud here in front of me, just for reference, and we're going to get to it a little bit more uh, as well, you'll find the following question. You'll find a law, a Jewish law, it could be any law that regards to a mezuzah, or to a lulav, or to tefillin, or to uh, a matzah, or to marriage and divorce, interpersonal law, ritual law, any kind of law, and they'll say a law, and then they'll say, where is this law sourced in the Torah? Menahan Emili, one of the most common questions the Talmud asks, where is this law sourced in the Torah? And it'll, it'll bring a verse in the Torah, and say, this verse in the Torah is the connection. Right? These two are saying the same thing. One's the law, and one's the core source of the law in the written Torah. That's approach number one. Approach number two is the exact opposite. Instead of starting from a law and trying to find our way back to the written Torah, it's the opposite. We start with a verse in the written Torah and we try to find the law. Now what this demonstrates, and we're going to demonstrate a little further as well, 
What this demonstrates is that the oral Torah, as manifest in the Talmud, and the written Torah, as what we know in the five books of Moses, are exactly mirror images of each other. Every law that the oral Torah brings down is also found in the written Torah format as well. And every written Torah sentence, verse teaching, can also be extrapolated in the oral Torah. So they're both essentially the same things. It's just that they're written differently. This is an astonishing point, and I'm 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 going to bring this out a little bit uh, um, with some examples. We look at the written Torah as the books of Moses that contain within them encoded messages, encrypted. It's hidden. And in those encrypted messages is all of Talmud. It's all of the oral Torah. And the oral Torah is 63 books. And sometimes we find that an entire book could be like hinted at on, in one sentence. And conversely, all the laws, all the copious laws that we have in the oral Torah, all those can trace their steps back to the written Torah. So I'm going to give you a few examples to bring this point home. We know Jewish weddings happen with uh, the groom taking a ring, which is an item of value, giving it to the bride, and saying special words. That is ubiquitous. All of Jewish communities follow the same custom. Now, that's Jewish law, so every Jewish law has to be sourced in the Torah. So where in the Torah is its source? Now, if you actually investigated the Torah from beginning to end, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, for 80 years you actually won't find any verse that says when a man wants to marry a woman, he gives her an item of value, typically a ring, and says there are special words. That doesn't appear anywhere. So says the Talmud, where is this law that we know that you sourced in the oral Torah? Where is it sourced in the written Torah? Where is it hidden in the written Torah that marriage happens with transference of an item of value from husband to wife. Where is that source? Listen to what it says. Listen, and I'll tell it to you, and then you try to work backwards, you won't be able to do it. So it sources it as follows. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Devarim, chapter 24, it says, when a man marries a woman, ki yitach ish isha, man marries a woman. And then... So marriage doesn't tell us how marriage happens. All the way back in Genesis, thousands of verses prior, it's talking about Abraham who is mourning his deceased wife, Sarah, and he's trying to find a burial spot for her. And he's negotiating with a fellow named Ephron. Ephron has a, um, a cave that Abraham desires to bury Sarah in, a cave that we know as the Morat HaMachbelah. And they're negotiating. The Torah describes the negotiation. How much do you pay? What do you want to pay? Eventually, they agree on a sum, 400 silver coins. And the verse says as follows, where Abraham tells him, Nasati, or Natati, Kesef hasada, kach mimeni. I gave the money for the field. Take, kach, the same word, ki, kach isha, and kach mimeni. Says the Talmud, you have two verses in opposite ends of the written Torah. 
they both share the word kach. One of them is talking about Abraham's narrative of purchasing field. One of them is talking about marriage, but they share the same, letter, same word. Says the oral Torah, this is an example of something being hidden in the written Torah, being encoded, being crypt, encrypted in it, and it's, it's saying it, it's just that if you read the Torah from beginning to end, if you tried to work backwards and say, okay, I want to learn all of Jewish law, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the Torah, and I'll find the answer. You might find some answers or some generalities, but you would never find that law. But every oral Torah law is found in the written Torah. It's just, it's hidden in a way that you wouldn't have known otherwise. And the oral Torah is all the laws, and not only that, how they're all sourced in the, Torah, in, in the, in the written Torah. And additionally, every law that's found in the oral Torah has to be sourced in the written Torah, and every verse in the written Torah is uh, telling us a law in the oral Torah. In a way that we could say, perhaps, nothing is missing from the oral Torah. Everything's sourced in the written Torah. And nothing is extra. There's no extra verses in the written Torah. And that capability or that idea of two enormous corpuses, or corpi, I don't know how to pronounce that, corpuses of knowledge that are so vastly different, yet at the core they're exactly the same, is just astounding. I think, you know, if you think about the fact that it's, you had a thousand of the most brilliant geniuses in the world, they couldn't do that. Where you convey the same information, identical information, in such dramatically different methods. Wherein in one place, you'll have the same word, a commonality of words, and opposite ends of different books. And on the other hand, when that comes out in the oral Torah format, it's an entire book of Talmud. And we have this in every page of Talmud. I'll give you another example. This one is what I brought my prop for. Well, what part of uh, Talmud is actually oral law? Is that We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Some That's right. Because there's about the specific names. I mean, it couldn't have all been given. Well, well, okay. We let's hold that. I want to talk about that next week. I want to hold it because I want to get to the end of here. But it's a good question. Um, because it's a little bit unclear as well. What's oral? Because there are some other points. And I'm just, we're talking about the generalities here. Okay, so I want, I want to look at another verse. So we have marriage. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, of course, it, of course it does. But you wouldn't know where to... And sometimes the Talmud says, how do you know that you compare this to that, this word to that word, not to the other word? So that's also, that adds another layer of complexity wherein you have to figure out exactly why one word is more comparable to example A, where that word appears, and not example B, where that same word appears. I want to look at another verse. What does that word actually mean? Kach means to take. Take. Take, which means a, a transaction of sorts. Just like you purchase something, there's a transference of rights and responsibilities uh, that happen with marriage. Okay, so I want to actually go do something very cool here. That same verse in Deuteronomy that talks about marriage also talks about divorce. And I'm read the verse in its entirety. When a man shall take or marry a woman and uh, bed her, be together, and it shall be if, they do, if she does not find favor in his eyes, for he found within her a uh, matter of promiscuity, he shall write to her or write to her a document of severance, 
a get, a document divorce, and shall place it in her hand, and shall send her away from his house, and she will go and marry someone else. So it describes marriage. The guy's not happy. He found something disappointing about her. He gives her a certain document, and she sends, away from, sends him away from, her house, from his house, and, uh, and they get uh, divorced, and she goes to marry someone else. What, what if she's not happy to find something wrong with him? Good question. Good question. So it's clearly orienting it from his perspective. This verse seems pretty straightforward. We'll get to that in your, in your point in a second. This but verse then seems... That's right. And, and nowadays as well, the men cannot initiate divorce unilaterally either. That was part of uh, what's called the Cheyrim Dabena Gershon, an edict that is more than a thousand years old. But that's not our point here. But this sim- seemingly straightforward verse that describes a marriage, a marriage that goes south, a document, a certain document that is given from the man to the woman, she takes it, she leaves his house, and she marries someone else. That's a very straightforward description. It's, what, you know, 15 words. Let me read to you some examples of what the Talmud deduces from just these words. Just a few words, and we have, in fact, the entire book. This is the book called Gittin. Gittin is one of the most wonderful books in Talmud. I spent a lot of time. It's about a get. And essentially, the entire book, so here we have thousands and thousands of of words, I'm saying, or even probably a thousand pages, and tiny, tiny letters, all of that is essentially orienting around that, those 15 verses, 15 words in, in Deuteronomy. And they're the same, the same thing. It's just in totally different formats, and it's perfectly aligned. Let me give you some examples of the things that are deduced from this verse. So, a man receives a knock at the door. There's a heathen there with a gun to the head and says, write a divorce document to your wife. He, obviously, he's terrified. He's, the guy's going to shoot him otherwise. He writes the divorce document. From this verse, we know that she's not divorced. Why? Because the verse says, and it shall be if he's, does not, she does not find favor in his eyes. He has to opt on his own will, not being forced, that he doesn't want to marry her. He wants to divorce her. That's... Um, that's law number one. Law number two, uh, that divorce can only happen with documentation. If a man says, I want to divorce you, I hereby divorce you, behold your divorce, none of that works. There has to be a get. If a couple is married and they get divorced in a civil court and there's no document of divorce as prescribed by the Torah, they're still married. And if that woman would, God forbid, go on and marry someone else, those kids would be mamzerim, would be bastards, halachic bastards, which is a terrible thing. Well, what if the marriage was civil? Was okay, so that's the question. If the marriage, if the marriage was civil, then, the, then... But it's not so clear, because even a civil marriage might actually work, because the civil marriage is followed up by civil living together. And that alone might be enough. That's a very advanced question. But that alone might be enough to render a halachic marriage. Because marriage, one way to get married is with that aforementioned ring. Another way to get married is by living together. So while the marriage may have only been civil on initiation, but the marriage, you know, when it's ongoing, is them living together, and that might be. It's a big question. That was argued. That was, that was argued uh, in very recent. So there's a halakhic common law marriage. 
Kind of, yeah. Well, it's a debate. It's an issue of debate, but uh, it's, a, it's a very fascinating one, huh? Well, it, w- it became very prominent what happens if Jewish couples are getting married in non-halachic formats. So, in order to render a marriage, or a divorce for that matter, you need to have two kosher witnesses. To be a kosher witness, you have to be someone who's observant of Torah law. So, if there's a marriage, and there's witnesses, but those witnesses are not observant of Torah law, that's actually invalid by Torah standards. So, with the rise of disregarding of certain parts of halacha in the recent 200 years, it became a much more prominent problem. 300 years ago, no one would ever dream of having a non-halachic civil marriage and not a halachic marriage. But now that became unfortunately more prevalent, and therefore this kind of halachic response had to be written as to what's the status of these marriages. So if you're married by justice of the peace and the witnesses are not Jewish, or even if they are Jewish, but they're not observant of any of Torah law, that's that's. But there is this position that says that the marriage would also work because not the marriage act, uh, activation is the one that kicks off the uh, marriage, but in this instance, it would be the ongoing relationship that they have would also. It's a it's a complicated question, but either way. Now, additionally, as to the nature of this divorce document. So if you remember, part of the sentence is that he has to write her a document of severance, sefer kurisus, which means to sever him. The relationship is over. Thus, the particular verbiage of the document has to be one that is unequivocal about separating them and him and they're also learned from the same verse. Additionally, uh, that the man has to give it. He places it in her hand. If the woman takes it, it's not, she's not divorced. What about it? She, well, if the man writes the document, puts the document on the table, and she comes and takes it. She's not divorced. He has to take it from his hand to her hand, or his emissary, his proxy, to her proxy. And how that works, all the questions that are raised with the laws of proxies. But that, this is where it's sourced, because he has to give it to her hand. And that's her, the extension of her hand is her, is her emissary. And what are the exact details of that? But remember, it all sources back to the actual verse. Uh, more laws here, for example, that she has to leave his house. So the thrust of the dead has to be that she leaves that would also invalidate, for example, the divorce of someone who is mentally unstable, as an example. If someone divorces, some, his wife went crazy. God forbid, right? Terrible. He wants to divorce her, right? So he gives her the document. And he says, at the door. But she comes back because she's not well. Well, that's not a good divorce. Even though he gave a kosher document, kosher witness, kosher everything. But the divorce document has to be that she leaves and doesn't come back. If she comes back, for whatever reason, not a valid divorce. Uh, additionally, how do we know that there's witnesses? Just an example. How do, we, how do we know there's witnesses? There has to be two kosher witnesses. Well, he ervas davar. He found a matter. Davar is a matter of promiscuity. And elsewhere, al pishnaim edim oshlosha edim yakum davar. As uh, per the witnesses of two or three, uh, uh, the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter, same word, davar, same matter, shall uh, be upheld. Thus we see that every 
divorce has to have a minimum of two witnesses. But remember, if you read this, you say, you would never make the connection to the entire end of the, the end of the Torah where it says... Two or three. If there's three, there's always two. So good question. That question is asked as well. These are all good questions. But every little verse and even letter, as we'll see in the Torah, is expounded. So you learn multiple laws and multiple understandings and from every word and every letter. Incredible. So, so what happens if there are two witnesses that saw, you know, are being promiscuous? He gives her the get, their divorce. Then two more witnesses come and say, these two witnesses couldn't have been there because they were in Hawaii. Well, well okay, so but the, the, this, is not a, this, this, this is not an example of, of, uh, of divorces for criminal proceedings. So what you're describing is the Adam Zomimim, the false witnesses. These are what's called edetium, which means witnesses that uphold a certain matter. So if there's a crime that happened of any sorts, and I want to adjudicate it in law, I would have to bring witnesses of an event. So that's one kind of witnesses. However, witnesses to uphold a transformation of sorts, as in from unmarried to married or from married to divorced, those are different witnesses. But good, good question. But the, you know, there's two or three witnesses not only for divorce, but it happens in many different. That's true, and and but the the, the example the example we're trying to bring is that this is sourced from the commonality of word in divergent parts of Torah. So that's that's want to bring out here, and uh, a few more quickly here. Um, there should be nothing interceding the giving. The writing and the giving, because it says he writes it and he gives it to her. So if something happens in the middle, um, for example, if what happens if someone writes a document of divorce on something that's still attached to the ground? So he takes a leaf, it's still attached to the ground, he writes the document, then he has to cut off the leaf and give it to his wife. Is she divorced? No. Why? Because it says he writes it and he gives it to her. It's as if the only thing that separates her from being divorced is the fact that he has to give it to her after he writes it. But if he still needs to cut it off, well, there's something else in between, and thus is learned, once again, from this verse. Um, and another example, is that the man has to give it, the man has to give it to the woman uh, in the context of divorce. So, for example, the woman says, uh, I need a mezuzah in my house. Or, like, this room, we made a new room. Yeah, give me a mezuzah. So he's very clever. And he goes and he gets the witnesses and he gets everyone. They writes a document of divorce, wraps it up to look like, a, look like a mezuzah. And he says, here you go, here's your mezuzah. But he didn't give it to her with the understanding that this is a document of divorce. That would also invalidate from this verse. I'm just giving you examples here. We have a single verse in the Torah. And when you read it fast, you could say, oh, yeah, this is how divorce happens. But when you read it in the, with the oral Torah lenses on, you see that every letter and the placement of the letters and the meanings of the letters and the juxtapositions of the letters and the fact that letters and words have correlates elsewhere in the Talmud, all in the Torah, in the written Torah, that is, all that is not by chance. And all that is opening up all of oral Torah to indeed be studied from written Torah. Fantastic. Is there different degrees in the divorce uh, validity? Like, uh, with no, the there, no, 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 no. It's divorced or not. I want to give you one more example quickly. And that is... The law of stopping, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago as well, of stopping a pursuer from committing rape. Now, what happens? You see someone 
pursuing someone else with the intention to rape them. So you are obligated by Torah law to prevent this travesty from happening, even if the only way to do that is by physically preventing the attacker, the would-be attacker, and even if it means killing them. So if the only thing you can do is shoot them, you've got to shoot them and kill them. Now, as to what classification of rape, the Talmud says, how, which cases of rape would be under this umbrella that would allow and indeed mandate that the pursuer be stopped, even if it means killing him. So it quotes a verse, uh, once again from Deuteronomy, so it takes these words, lanara mavet, and it learns out four laws from three words. Incredible! If, in, when the Talmud looks at three words, just it learns four. How does it learn four laws from from three words? It's only three words, right? How can you learn more than three? L- Ideas from only three words. And the answer is because one of those words is na'ara. In Hebrew, na'ara is spelled a nun, and then an ayin, and then a resh, and then it depends. Sometimes it's spelled without a hey, and sometimes it's spelled with a hey. And says the Talmud, when the Talmud looks at the Torah, it says... Wait a minute, this, one, this time it's spelled with the hay. But it didn't need to say the hay, right? Because it could spell it as well without the hay. Thus, the fact that it says the word teaches you one law, and the fact that it makes the addendum, the additional hay that it did not need to do, tells you another law. Two laws. Lanara is two laws. Chait is another law. And Mavis is a, third, is a fourth law. Thus, and we see this again, and I'm just, I just picked a few examples, but there are hundreds of examples wherein nothing that is written in the Torah is extra. Everything corresponds to a law. We learned about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was always wanted to ask, why is this Aleph here? Why is this Beth? He was that, what we call a nudnik, because he understood this message. Every, if it's from God, obviously, there's nothing extra. But the Oral Torah is also from God. And indeed, the Oral Torah and Torah are companion works. They're the same content presented differently. You look at the Oral Torah, and you can read it on a simplistic view, and you're like, wait a minute, how does the Oral Torah get all these laws from that? Because the truth is, it's all there, but it's hidden. It's encrypted. And the Talmud decrypts it all and actually fleshes it out with the laws and all the practical details and all the questions of like, you know, if I told you what happens if a man divorces his wife on a leaf and then he writes it on the leaf and then he cuts off the leaf and then he gives it to her. Would she be divorced or not? You would scratch your head. I don't know. All it says is he gives her a divorce document. Doesn't, but says the Talmud, no, no, no. Actually, it says that very clearly. Well, it's not so clearly, but once you read the Talmud, it all becomes clear. Now, I think with regards to our pursuit, our question as to what can we deduce from the evidence um, to determine authorship of oral Torah and written Torah, I think this idea, which I think students of Talmud take for granted, because it happens at every page, just like we take for granted the fact that our heart beats 89,000 times a day because it happens every day, 
And unfortunately, students of Talmud don't realize what exactly, like how fascinating is it that all of Torah is written in two formats, or at least was given in two formats, and now indeed is written in two formats. And it's unbelievable how you have the same content so masterfully hidden in the written Torah, and so wonderfully in, de- in such detail, in such minutia, extrapolated in the oral Torah. And how indeed these are companion words given together, both by Moshe, both by God, because otherwise it's, it's illogical. It, just tell me how this works. Did someone, different people wrote the different books? We know the oral Torah was only written in the second, well, it was started to, to be written in the end of the second century. The written Torah we know existed from hundreds of years prior. Who did all this work? Who ensured that the oral Torah was exactly perfectly matching to the written Torah if it's not indeed both from God? It's, just, it's another thing that if people want to question, and people do, but if they want to be fair about approaching this important question, they have to address this. They have to ask the question, how did this all happen if it's not the way we claim it happens? I think that, you know, we have to gain a new appreciation for the fact that the evidence that we've demonstrated here, of course, but in the preceding six lectures, and there's more, and I have a little bit more, but it really is overwhelming, and it's, it's checkmate to the Bible critics. And there's two kinds of Bible critics. There's the oral Bible critics and the written Bible critics, and they both uh, really have mountains of evidence that they haven't even begun to respond to. Yes? Can I ask you a quick question? Yes. So I always thought that this will say have a circumcision. And the oral Torah will explain how to do that. That's right, but it all sources it all back. So we're going to get into the details next so week, nitty gritty. So you're saying there's not a difference between what's in here and another? Well, it says it, but it also hints to you how to fulfill it. It does. Yes. Yeah, there's 13 methods of derivation. Now, to be clear, there are some exceptions. There are some exceptions. So, for example, the Rambam brings us a list of about five or six different laws that are not in the in the oral Torah. They're not in the written Torah. Cannot be sourced in the written Torah. It's called Halacha Lamoshe Misina. It's a law from Moses at Sinai that was never included in the written document. I'll give you an example. You make a blessing, right? Outside there, they're making blessings. So uh, what is the minimum requirement of the size of the food that you need to eat to fulfill the mitzvah of the achalta v'zavata The Torah tells us, you eat, you get satiated, you bless. There's a mandatory mitzvah from the Torah to do what we know as berkat amazon, to bench as we say in Yiddish, that we, after we eat, we are satiated, we bench, we make a blessing. What's the minimum requirement? How much do you have to eat? Do you have to eat all? A whole plate, a big plate full of bread, one little morsel of bread. How much is it? So that's an example of what we call shiurim, which is minimum requirements of Torah laws. Like, how big must an esrod be? You know, how much matzah do you need to eat in Passover? All those laws are halachal mishmasinai. That's one example of things that are not sourced in the written Torah and only in the oral Torah, and they're not connected. But everything else, every mitzvah that we have in, written to, in oral Torah, every law that we have, is sourced back to written Torah. There are, it's a simplification. If you want to know more about it, I would advise you to read 
the Rambam's introduction to Mishnah, where he goes through these in detail, all the examples, and he says, you know, what are the six different kinds of mitzvahs? And right? He goes through them all in, in, in very exhaustive detail. But the big picture is we have two uh, methods, or two books nowadays, two books that uh, one of them is such a condensed form and one of them is such a uh, uh, exhaustive form and they say the same thing and they prove it all and there's nothing missing here and there's nothing extra unsourced there and that I think is something that we really need to ponder if we want to uh, even make the claim that uh, the written Torah or the oral Torah is not from God because like we say the only way to do that is if you have simultaneously the most brilliant man that ever lived, or group, groups of men, and also the zilliest, and who's also an anti-Semite, who somehow managed to convince the Jews of the truth of all of them. It's just, it's just preposterous. Now, I want to look at three mitzvahs, and with this, uh, hopefully, we'll conclude. Three mitzvahs the Torah tells us that while it's not a prediction like we did last week, it's not the Torah predicts future events that happened, but it's something that we really have to ponder as to whether or not a human or a group of human that would consider to try to uh, write a book, a hoax, and claim that it's the word of God, would they actually include it? So it's kind of like a psychological evidence. Let me read these verses here. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its produce. In ancient times... It was an agrarian society. If you wanted to eat and feed your children, you'd have to plant. You'd have to be a farmer. Most people. 98% of the people. But, in the seventh year, a Sabbath of solemn rest it shall be for the land. Your field you should not sow. Your vineyard shall prune. That which grows by itself you shall not reap. The grapes of your vine you shall not gather. This is what we know as the mitzvah of Shemitah. We read it a couple of weeks ago in, in the Parsha. And this is a requirement, an obligation, a transgression against planting, plowing, harvesting, sowing, reaping, anything involved with the whole process of working the land for an entire year. Start with Rosh Hashanah to the next Rosh Hashanah. You're off. You take a sabbatical. This is, by the way, where the word sabbatical comes from. A year off. Every every seven, you take a year off. Now, this notion of taking a year off is actually a, a very good idea. Uh, we know now that the land needs time to kind of regain its nourishment. It's, uh, it's you know, it has, to, it has to kind of give some time to breathe. So the idea of taking one year every seven off is actually not so far from what we know today in, in maximizing agricultural output. But... If you wanted your country and your people to not starve to death, what you would do is you make a rotation. That every, every year, you know, 14% of the people are off. Or 40% of the fields are off. And that way, overall, it gets maximized, but you never have a year where no one's working and everyone could starve. Problem is, the Torah tells us, is that Shemitah, this sabbatical for the land is not just one that we have a rotation. All the farmers in the same year. Everyone's got to stop their work, stop their plowing, stop tending to the field. What about the fact that you may starve to death? Isn't that a valid question? 
What do you do? You know, import it from Canada? We, we can eat. So, of course, the Torah addresses that. And this is continuing, continuing that verse. And if you will say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we may not plant nor gather in our produce. It's a legitimate question. Says God, I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth produce for the three years. And you will not plant in the eighth year and eat of the old produce, and you will plant in the eighth year and eat of the old produce until the ninth year. What it's telling us is that the sixth year will be a bumper crop. You'll have enough for the sixth, for the seventh, and for the eighth. We'll store it up, good to go. Now, if I had some sort of cuneiform tablets or some hieroglyphics or some sort of documentation that survived till today that says, oh, it was in the year, uh, I don't know, 400 since we got into Israel and it's a Shemitah year and it was the year before was a bumper crop. We don't have any documentation. We don't know as to whether or not there was a bumper crop. We don't have that data. But what we have to ask ourselves, well, what we do know, first of all, is that the Jews were observant of the Torah, essentially since Moshe came around, with minor episodes of schisms, but until basically today. The idea of a Jew not practicing Judaism is an anomaly in Jewish history. So the Jew, we know the Jews were observant, and we know that they were farmers. But my question is like this. Suppose we are the committee of the fabrication of the Torah. We're the ones who are going to do it. And I would say, hey, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I have a proposition of a new law. The law would be to not work on the seventh year. Well, what's, you guys are all going to say, well, what are they going to eat? We don't want our people to die because people die and our hopes is all for naught. I say, oh, stop there. I have, I, have, I have the solution. I'll just include the verse, the fact that we'll have a bumper crop for three years. Is there any sane fabricator that would say that's a good idea? Certainly not. And certainly not if the intention ever was that this should be accepted in perpetuity as the word of God. So I, I, I don't have some sort of account or historical account or fragment of pottery or anything like that that says it was a sitch seer and it was a bumper crop and it was a miracle. But that's not the point. My point is, is that this text is in every single text of Torah that we have. Arguably, it's insane to say that it was added later. Right? No one even says that. So this is what the author gave us. If the, the author can either be God or someone who's absolutely insane to think that people will follow this. And we know that the argument that supposes that God is not the author maintains that either it was Ezra or it was, I don't know, Jeremiah or it was a collection of people. But either way, their intention... well. It, Either way, everyone agrees that these were tremendously gifted authors, but also that their intention was that people would believe it. Why would they include this 
It's a question we have to ask ourselves. I don't even know the example of this. Well, you know, the, if you have a 50th year, then the new cycle... That's the right. Year, let me formulate the question. Okay, so we have 50 years, okay? So the, the first year of the seven-year cycle will be year 51, right? It would not be the year of Jubilee, but the next year will be the, after the year of Jubilee, would be the first year of the seven-year cycle, right? Yeah. Okay, so then, actually, it's not a parallel to the Sabbath, because that just goes... Fair. It's not, it's not, it's not. But that, obviously, I didn't bring that, but that adds ever more uh, uh, asininity, if that's even a word, to the notion that this was the product of man, that they would have every so often a double a double so sabbatical in which Israel, is insane my understanding is that they don't they don't Israel, they don't do they the they don't do the jubilee they don't but because they, do, that they still do the seventh the sabbatical year. that's right because the jubilee can only be done when the temple is excellent. but uh, do they okay so my question is this right now in Israel, do they acknowledge that this is but they don't celebrate it maybe but they acknowledge that this is year jubilee and they go in 50 years no cycle, no right? no no so the way it works is that the jubilee only interrupts the seven year cycle if the jubilee is celebrated or is performed so if we don't have a jubilee we just start year 1 as year is year 50 is year 1 not 51 so it doesn't disrupt the uh, the pattern oh okay Okay, I want to look at another myth. So this is so from when, Exodus. When did they, it was the destruction of the second temple when they stopped. I don't know the exact details. This is a big question, a big debate. I wish I figured this out. It's not so clear. Um, another example here. Look at um, Exodus chapter 34. Now you have to look at it, but examine it. And there's a mitzvah that says, we read it all the times in the holidays, three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, I will throw out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither shall any man desire your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times during the year. This is referring to the mitzvah of Aliyala Regel, which is the pilgrimage that happened on the holidays of Sukkot and the holidays of Pesach and Shavuot. Now, what's the mitzvah? Every able-bodied man must go to Jerusalem to celebrate Wonderful mitzvah. Now, what happens when we take all the able-bodied men of a nation and converge them into one city? What happens to the rest of the place? Well, everything is vulnerable to attackers. Because if the entire the entire civilian force and all the every able-bodied man is in Jerusalem, then every part of the rest of town, the rest of the country is fair game. So what does the Torah say? Neither shall any man desire your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God, Lord your God three times during the year. <coughs> it's telling us, miracle, what's going to happen? Your enemies during this time won't even want your land. It's almost like the miracle that happened during the Yom Kippur War where the Syrian armies and all the tanks that they had were looking at Tiberius, and they had the open road before them. There was nothing in their way. And they were so sure it was a trap, they just turned around and went home. When they could have driven straight, unmolested, to Tiberius, to Haifa, to Tel Aviv, nothing was stopping them. But for whatever reason, the Almighty just caused that they just didn't desire the land. Modern-day example. 
They just turned around and they said, no, this must be a trap. They went home. That's what's going to happen. Now, once again, I want to ask the question. This is a prediction of guaranteed security in a time where there's hostilities and, and uh, relationships that are very tense with our neighbors and different people that we're constantly fighting. Says the Torah, go to the land of Israel, all the men go, everyone's obligated. What about the security? I'll take care of that. And my question is not, once again, I don't have some sort of evidence that says that's what happened every year. They all laid down their arms. But the point is, is if we were in the room convening to try to write this document of all documents, this book that we're going to convince the Jews of the Torah, would we include this guarantee of security? It doesn't make any sense. And I want to give one more example here, which is another example which, uh, along these lines that we have to really question the logic of considering this to be the product of men or uh, a group or committee of men. This is talking about how do we get uh, military uh, conscription. We have a battle, we need to fight a battle, we need men. What do we do? Do we do a draft? Do we do a lottery? So it's like this. They gather all the people there, all the men, and they announce as follows. Which man over here has built a new house and has not begun to live in it? Let him go return to his house. New homeowners, go home. And who has planted a vineyard and has not used its fruit? Go back to your vineyard, go home. And who is the man that betrothed the woman but not married her? Go home. And the last one, this is the best. Who is fearful and faint-hearted? Who's scared to go to battle? Who's quivering in their boots? Go home. Who's left? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's like the big company's not paying taxes, right? There's enough, there's so many loopholes that only the little guys get to pay. So who's the one who's going to stay there? What about I, right now that they have... Uh, they're not following this law. But my point is that the, this is obviously impractical, right? There's so many exemptions. Who would think this is the, a smart idea? If you're God, you could say, listen, all I need, I don't need, I don't need any men. You have two pious men who are not new homeowners and don't have, are not, are not, aren't new farmers and aren't newlyweds. That's all. God doesn't need... If God is fighting for you, you don't need to worry. But if we, once again, were writing this book with an intention that it's accepted as the Word of God, we wouldn't write something that we cannot back up and something that would certainly decimate our nation the first time we go into battle. What's going to happen? Joshua says, okay, who, who, you know, who, all these exemptions, half the place leaves. And who's fearful? Another half leaves. You got 25%. You just, you just lost the battle. You lost the battle... Unless God's with you. God's with you, you don't have to worry about it. What about the exemption that um, they claim for studying the Torah? Is that a valid exemption? This is not part of, in in the Torah's wars, the the wars that a a sovereign Jewish state under Torah law, then Torah study would not be an exemption, um, although almost anything else would be. Um, and indeed, the ones that would go to the battle are the ones that are meritorious and thus not fearful and not faint-hearted. Um, but I, I think, you know, we've spent sufficient time 
analyzing this debate and you know really questioning both sides. Uh, we saw a lot of different kinds of evidence. Like I said, if you haven't listened to all of them, I'm going to send out an email, uh, the seven, one after another. And really, I think it's a very good question to ask. Like, it seems likely from the evidence that it's indeed the product of God. It's the, it's the, it's, this is God's Torah. We haven't been hoodwinked. Ain't, ain't that nice? And, there's, and that's wonderful and inspiring and exciting. And it's wonderful to know that our religion and our people and our nation, our history and our destiny has not just been for naught. You know, there is a grand purpose here. There is meaning to, be, to life as a Jew. And the fact that our nation and our people and our ancestors, all of our ancestors, were people that lived by this. And to know that they weren't totally mistaken, that's, that's nice to know. Now, even if we do believe, it's nice to examine the evidence and just prove unequivocally that indeed this is the word of God. Now, a lot of people try to say, well, divinely inspired. You say divinely inspired, you're trying to straddle both sides of the, of the fence. You say it's divine, but it's not divine. You got to choose. Is it the product of God? If it is, you can't take out verses. If it is, it's still mandatory. If it is, there's meaning to life. Or it's the product of man. It's 10 suggestions, maybe 613 suggestions. But it's all arbitrary and it's all on the cutting board. And we, sh- we really have to examine every one and say, does this make sense or does this not make sense? Why do we have Shabbos and Saturday? Let's make it t- Tuesday. Well, what's the difference? So we can't straddle the fence. And we have to choose. But if you choose, you've got to follow it all along. Once you make a choice, look at the evidence and examine it and see if you can reasonably say that it's the Word of God, which I believe you can. We demonstrated it in six sessions, seven, seven sessions now. But if it's the product of men, okay. But you have to realize what that means. And what that means is, is that every one of your grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandfathers and a hundred generations, all of them were fooled. All of them. Not only that, it means you shouldn't be doing any Jewish stuff. Nothing. None of, that made, none of it made sense. Absolutely everything. Well, some things may make sense, but not in the Jewish context. They don't make sense because they're Jewish. They make sense because irrespective of that. Not only that, every sacrifice that has been done, every act of martyrdom for Torah and for God, all the millions, perhaps billions of hours that people spend studying it with the cognition that's word about, all that's for naught. But that is what you choose if you opt into that door. That's what you're choosing. It's okay if you want to do it, but you have to realize that A, the evidence is all against you, and B, the ramifications are absolutely devastating for a nation. I look forward to continuing studying about the oral Torah next week. All the questions that were brought up today are... Uh, going to hopefully be delved into at great length. Um, And I would encourage everyone to really sit down with themselves and sit down with the evidence and come to a conclusion. And once you make that conclusion, go through that door all the way. But know where you're getting yourself into. I'll thank you all.